0: Okay, so just trying to see how many people here know me. Well, there's a few of you. There's a handful. You know, I do that just because I'm trying to gauge whether or not I should share just a little bit of who I am and uh, how I came to know the Lord. I usually do that, and it's been a while since Dwight has had me fill in here. But when I first got started in the ministry back in 1988, my wife and I moved to Minnesota. I'm originally from there. Don't hold that against me. Uh, my wife is a huge Packers fan, go figure, she's from California, and you know, and one thing I have to say too is, you know, when Dwight called me up and asked if I could fill in for him, I thought, well, sure, yeah, I'm happy to do it because it's the time change weekend, I thought I'll get an extra hour of sleep, but then the complication was because of the Packer game, it was a little difficult to find a hotel room, so I just stayed at the soup kitchen and uh, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. But uh, getting back to 1988, when my wife and I, the Lord put it on our heart to start a, a Bible study in our home uh, in Minnesota, the first Calvary Chapel that was even within driving distance was this one. And so this has a very special place for me. My wife and I, we um, we drove out here. I introduced myself to Dwight, um, let him know what God was putting on our heart. Back then, you know, there was only a handful of Calvary Chapels throughout the country, maybe about 100, 120. And uh, I remember shortly after that, Dwight was either going to India or Israel—I don't recall which one—but he called me up and he asked me if I would fill in for him. And I was just like very nervous. Oh, okay, I mean, thinking he doesn't even know me, and he's inviting me to fill in in the pulpit. I'm thinking, wow, Lord, you're just this is scary and intimidating, and yet at the same time, um, over the years have been here many times for conferences. The other thing is when I was ordained, I was actually ordained from this fellowship here as well, so my certificate of ordination comes from our fellowship from from this fellowship as well, so I do consider at home um spiritually, I do consider many of you just dear friends, and so I do count it a privilege to to fill in here. I'm just kind of bummed that I can't go out with Dwight afterwards for lunch and hang out with him this morning we are going to be in Romans chapter eight beginning in verse 10, so you can turn in your Bibles there. The thing that I'm always blessed by and impressed by when I come here is the emphasis on the Word of God. I mean, just from the beginning of the service, throughout the service, leading up to the teaching of God's Word, just how the Word of God is emphasized, it's revered, even as I was coming in and uh, getting out of my van and making my way in. I I just saw people parking their cars and just carrying their Bibles with them. I mean, you might think that that's just, doesn't every church do that? Well, if you've visited any other churches, or if you know any other believers, you know that every church doesn't do that. And yet, there is an emphasis on that. Not just on Sunday mornings, or for the midweek study, or home fellowship groups, or men's Bible study, or women's studies. But the emphasis is the teaching of God's word for you on a daily basis to be in God's word. That's how we mature. That's how we, we grow spiritually. But also, too, that's how we are equipped for what is going on in our daily lives, but equipped for what is going on in this world that we're living in. You know, the other thought that came to me when Dwight asked me to fill in as I looked at the calendar and I thought, wow, that's just a couple of days before the election. And I thought, oh, this is good. And then I thought, no, this isn't good, the election. (laughs) And so I kind of wrestled about what and where to teach. And as I began to pray, this is where the Lord brought me to. I have lots of fears and anxieties. And I started thinking, well, wait a second, where did I teach last time? And I was actually tempted to call, you know, back to the office and say, hey, can you look up and and find out in your archives where I taught last time? Maybe this is the same place, maybe it isn't. I don't remember. I tried to look at my own notes and my computer couldn't find it as well. So, but this is where God brought me, and I love how the Lord confirms things, and I'll share with, that, with you in a second about that, but, you know, before we go any further, I just need to pray myself, because that's part of my routine before I teach, and so just join me in a moment. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for a wonderful time of worship, a time of fellowship with brothers and sisters, but Lord, also, too, just a time of intimate communion with you. I just ask, Lord, that you'd bless this time, that you would use your word to speak to our hearts, Lord, and that we would be doers of your word, not hearers only. And we ask you these things in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hmm. I love this weekend. The other thing I recalled when Dwight asked me was, time change weekend. I love the time change weekend. It's You get back that hour that you gave up in the spring. And for me, again, to one thought, it was back when I was in the Marine Corps, I went through boot camp during the fall. And at least when I went through, which was back in 1979, I was in for four years from 79 to 83, You know, you're a little disoriented for those three months that you're in boot camp because you really aren't able to see what's going on in the outside world. You don't read any newspapers. You don't listen to any radio. You're not allowed to watch any television. This is back before the days of Internet or smartphone or any of those things. And every day kind of runs together. You get up at 530 in the morning. You go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. And that one morning on the time change weekend, while I was in boot camp, all of a sudden, your body is used to getting up at 5.30, everybody's awake, and wondering, why isn't the drill instructor walking down the squad bay and yelling and screaming and throwing the trash can around and, and trying to get you up out of the rack? And all of a sudden, you know, after a while of laying there, you said, what's going on? What's going on? What happened? And then we realized, oh, yeah, it's the time change weekend. So every time change weekend, I always think, about that. I know it's kind of odd, but I always think about that and I enjoy that memory. This morning, as I mentioned, we're in Romans chapter 10. I mean, I'm Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. And I'm just going to tell you up until this point, what the Apostle Paul has done is he has established the fact that nobody is righteous in the power of their own flesh and trying to keep the commandments of God, trying to keep the law, or somehow feeling like, Lord, I, I've really lived a, a righteous life through keeping your commandments, because the bottom line is we all fall short. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, in the efforts of our flesh, we can never measure up to the standard that God requires to be in a relationship, to be in fellowship with Him. It's a very simple point, and again, to, you, know, you can backtrack through that. At the end of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul expresses his frustration because he points out of this struggle between the desire to do good, to live righteously, and the tendency of the flesh and the temptations of the flesh to sin. And as he's, in a sense, articulating that struggle... As he's talking about, you know, I want to do good, but I don't do it. And I know I shouldn't do bad, but I you know, sinful things, but I end up doing those things. And at the end of chapter seven, in verse twenty four, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And in verse twenty five, he gives the answer I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind. Boy, I really do need a I really do need a box, I mean a, a soap box. He says, With the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Chapter 8 opens with, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, the problem is, is that we're condemned if we try to do it in the power of our flesh. It's a good thing when the spirit convicts us. And there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation makes me feel like I can never measure up. Measure up, I'm frustrated. Uh, you know, I'm going to try better hard next time, Lord. But then I fall short. And then the enemy comes in. The devil comes in. he reminds us of our failures. And you feel that weight of that condemnation. It actually, many times, condemnation will drive a person away from God. But the difference between condemnation and conviction is a conviction then, again, to prompts me to come once again to the foot of the cross, confess my sin, receive the forgiveness that God has for me, and to be in fellowship once again, just like we do before we take communion. Again, just that reminder of coming in a worthy way. Now, I wanted to establish the the beginning of the chapter just so that when we jump to verse 10... And again, too, you can read uh, the beginning part of the chapter if you like. But really, uh, I, I want to just begin in verse 10 just because I, I'm going to park. And I, when I say that, I think about Pastor Chuck. Have you ever listened to him teaching on the cassette tapes or the MP3 files? And as he teaches, he gets to that point where all of a sudden you can tell the Spirit of God is working And he parks on a particular verse, and he really begins to expound on it. And my desire is to actually park on verse 28. I hope that that's what happens, but I want to build up to that point. But beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul then says, he says, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sins or sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit which dwells or that dwells in you. One thing I probably should explain as I do read the old King James. Um, I'm just too used to it. I've tried other versions and I like other versions. I refer to other versions. But for me, it just is such a com- comfortable thing to do, not only to read it, but to teach from it. And so I, I do that. I try to kind of change the these and thous on the fly from time to time. But the thing that Paul says here in verse 10, he says, if Christ be in you, and it's not just a if. It's a if since. It's, uh, and I was listening to a couple of messages and, Recently, I was listening to Damian Kyle mention this, as he says, my wife says, honey, I'm going to the grocery store. And then Damian responds, well, if you're going to the grocery store, could you pick this up for me? It's not a, you know, if you go to the grocery, it's because since you're going to the grocery store, and that's how it's used here. It's if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin. Our In a sense, the sinful flesh has been put to death, but it only happens when Christ is in you. When the gospel is presented, a person senses that conviction, they realize the good news of what Jesus has done. I've shared my testimony before, but I'll just briefly mention, I was in the Marine Corps, as it's been brought up, and uh, I was working for a guy who was a believer. I was a a corporal at the time. He was a staff sergeant. There was a small group of us. And he used to come every day uh, to work with a big box, a a cardboard box that had duct tape, holding it all together, but filled with cassettes. I mean, that's what we used back in those days, cassettes, you know, MP3s or something that's new and, you know, different formats for playing, but cassettes. And he, he, he would stock the refrigerator with food. Good food. He he used it as a means of evangelism because in the Marine Corps, you have to eat at the chow hall. And typically, there was this cycle. We would get paid, and you would go out into town, and you'd blow your money. Again, To as a non-believer, you'd blow it on things like alcohol or food or trying to chase women, things like that. I was a pretty good, clean Marine before I got saved. But I did like to waste my money on just eating out because who wants to eat at the chow hall? But about a week into the pay period, you were out of money. And then you'd have to eat at the chow hall. And what Sam would do was, he would say, hey, you want to have lunch with me? And who doesn't want to skip going to the chow hall and just eating there in the office that we worked at? And he had great lunch meats and cold cuts and you know but the 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 little hook was well if we eat lunch with you then we got to listen to your cassette of pastor chuck and that's what he would do you know he was he was in a sense filling us with the word of god and god's word says that it doesn't return void but it accomplishes the purpose that god sends it forth to do and in the process of that And again, too, myself thinking, I'm a pretty good person. I grew up going to church. But in the process of that, being confronted with what the Word of God says. And the day that I accepted Jesus as my Savior, which was at work, I realized that Christ came into me. I didn't know that you could have that intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, too, I, over the, the, the couple months that I'd worked with Sam, I mean, he's always sharing the gospel. I, 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 you know, I want to encourage you, if there are those that are in your life that you'd like to see them saved, never stop, never give up preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with loved ones. He was relentless. I mean, every conversation would come back to Jesus. Every conversation, I don't care. I mean, he would hear us talking about something. You know, he might hear us talking about the baseball game or a football game. And, and, and you know, then all of a sudden he'd walk up and he'd say, well, you know, there's a, a struggle between good and evil as well. And let me tell you what Jesus has done. I mean, he, it didn't matter what you were talking about. He could turn the conversation back into an evangelistic opportunity. And, you know, when you're a non-believer, you know, your body, your flesh, your spirit, You know, you're just resisting that. You just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to believe in Jesus. I want to do my own thing. I mean, you might not articulate that, but the bottom line is you're resistant to that. It is a spiritual struggle that's taking place. But finally, he challenged me. And he said, well, do you believe the Bible is God's word? And I know I couldn't defend it one way or the other, but I said, yeah, I think it is God's word. He said, well, let me take you a passage, and I'll have you read it. And then you tell me what you think it means, because I had said to him, I think the Bible's God's word, but I think you can make it say anything you want. And, and he says to me, well, here, I want you to read in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And it says in there, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The scripture says that whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. And I thought, all of a sudden, for the first time in my life as a young man, that light came on. And I realized that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he asked me, do you, what do you think the Bible means here? You know, there's so many different types of ways in which people are trying to be brought into church or brought into the kingdom, and yet... Use God's word because God's word is quick and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to separate between soul and spirit. Joint and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When I read that, all of a sudden, something took place in my heart. Like on the day of Pentecost, as Peter finishes preaching, all of a sudden, the multitudes, they were convicted in their heart. And when they asked Peter, what should we do? And Peter tells them, repent, believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized. So when Sam asked me, do you, what do you think that passage means? All this many months of him sharing, all of a sudden, everything I understood at that moment. And I realized, I said, it sounds to me like you can be saved by believing in Jesus Christ and by confessing him as your Lord. And he says, that's right. He says, do you want to accept Jesus as your Savior? And I remember thinking two things. Again, the the struggle between, you know, what God is wanting to do and the resistance either of my flesh or the enemy wanting to pluck up the seed that's being planted like in the parable of the sower. I remember thinking... Is this how you get in a cult? <laughs> you know, am I, if, if I do what he says, am I going to be wearing robes and selling flowers at the airport, shave my head? Well, I was already in the Marine Corps, so it wasn't much of a, a distance to shave a little bit of hair. But then I remember thinking, is salvation this simple? Is it as simple as confessing my sin and trusting in Jesus Christ and inviting him into my heart? And I thought if it's this simple, I'd be foolish not to. So I did pray that day. It was a beautiful, sunny Southern California day. I was stationed on a Marine Corps Air Air Base, Air Station. And I remember the moment that I prayed to invite Jesus Christ in my heart, my life radically changed. I knew Christ's presence in my life for the first time. I knew the difference between being In Christ, and the difference between being just in a church and going to a church. And Paul says if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. When Christ comes in you, then you're cleansed from the inside out as opposed to man's effort to try to cleanse himself from the outside, hoping that the inside or the heart is made clean by our outward righteousness. And that never works. We still are in that dead condition of sin. And he says in verse 11, that if the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you he that raised up christ from the dead shall also old king james says quicken make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you the spirit of god begins to work in our lives and previous the you know even as i read the opening of the chapter you begin to see that it is completely different than a work of the flesh or me trying in my own efforts to be righteous or to be good or or somehow make you know, a a way to God by my own efforts and you begin to realize Jesus has done all of that. All we have to do is to trust. Humble ourselves because there is humility involved. Again, when the Spirit is convicting our hearts, I mean, nobody wants to say, I'm wrong. Nobody wants to say, I'm a sinner. But in John's epistle, that's the only way that we receive forgiveness. I think even as we once we even come to Christ, you know, it's still many times difficult because the flesh still wants to fight against the Spirit of God. The difference is we now have the ability to resist the flesh, whereas before we didn't. Sometimes when my wife and I, and it's, you know, we've been married now for 33 years, but occasionally we still have a little conflict, a little disagreement, and, and, and it's so difficult I don't know if it's difficult for her, but I know it's difficult for me to say those two words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, know, if I say I'm sorry, it's an acknowledgement that I did something wrong. I mean, I find that even, you know, it's, it's still a struggle, but I've found that just being able to be honest and say I'm sorry or to hear what she is saying to me or... Again, too, the other way around, for her to hear what I'm saying and then to say I'm sorry, or even in any other relationship. I mean, my wife, and those of you that know her, I mean, she is wonderful. She's just, she's, you know, recently another uh, person in our fellowship said, you married a Proverbs 31 woman. I said, yeah, I did. I really married a better than I deserve, And, and I did, those of you that know her. But, you know, if it's that difficult for me to say I'm sorry to the woman that loves me, that shares my life with me, I mean, how difficult is it sometimes with other people as well, whether it's in the body of Christ or family or or people that we work with. But here's the thing, the Spirit of God works in our hearts. And we sense that. And even if we never say I'm sorry, we know in our hearts we're convicted by the Spirit working. And it says that there's power. For the the Holy Spirit to make alive our mortal bodies, uh, because ultimately that's what God is going to do in our lives. In verse twelve, it says, "Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you after the flesh, uh, I'm sorry. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the of the body, you shall live." So begins the work of the Spirit. In a sense, mortifying, putting to death those things in my life that are unpleasing to God or that are sinful. It's a a total work of the Spirit. Again, too, you know, there's an obedience that we play in having to yield to the Spirit, but God is wanting to work to do that. And in verse 14, he says, As many as are led of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I, again, to this particular chapter, and I know the joke was made about Dwight since it's my favorite psalm. And I know for pastors, I thought, you know, we, we love to say that. This is my favorite chapter of the Bible. This is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorite sections, just simply for a couple of reasons. First of all, verse 14 the emphasis of, of being led by the Spirit. And when I say that, I suppose you could start to think about all kinds of crazy things maybe that you think, or that maybe others that you know, that claim to be believers in Jesus Christ and say, "The Spirit led me." And do you know people like that that maybe you don't have to raise your hand, you could just smile, kind of knowingly, someone that says, well, "The spirit led me." When we first started the Bible study in our house, there was a handful of people that were coming. And there was a a guy that, again, too, he... This is a long time ago when we started the Bible study in our house. And it was really funny just the circumstances of how it all came about. But there was a guy who had heard about our Bible study... And he calls me up a half hour before the study. He says, are you studying the Bible? I said, yes. He says, can I come? i love to study the Bible. I said, okay, sure. When are you starting? We're starting a half hour. And he started coming. And again, some of you may have heard this story before. But as he started to come, I knew that there was something kind of not right. Because he wouldn't always, again, to communicate or he wasn't that honest he kind of kept things and again too there's a difference between being again to being polite or not just spilling your guts I'm not talking about that but he would deliberately go out of his way to keep things kind of to himself I'd ask him how long you've been a Christian and uh, he, he had a very strong kind of Minnesota accent if you want to call it that he'd say for a while And I'd say, for how long? He said, well, you know, I'd say a month, two months, a year, five years. And then he would just say, for a while. I mean, he didn't want to answer my question. Well, you know, and his name was Jeff. And I said, well, Jeff, um, where have you gone to church before? And he'd say, different places. And I'd say, "Uh, where Baptist church, Methodist church, Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God, non-denominational churches. I just, again, too, I'm, I'm kind of find, wanting to find the answer to the question. Just, to, again, too, so it gives me an idea of who he is. I mean, we're just like four or five people starting in our home. And, again, too, you want to build a close relationship with people, especially somebody who's faithful. I mean, he was coming week in and week out to our Bible study. But, you know, after I'd say that, and then he would just respond with different places. I mean, he didn't want to answer the question. And from time to time, then, he would ask me questions. And I would try to go to God's word and explain to him why we were doing what we were doing and how we were doing things. But one of the things he said to me at one point was, I feel like the Lord wants me to dance. The Spirit is leading me. And again, too, I bring this up just because in verse 14 it says, As many as are led of the Spirit, they are the sons of God. Again, too, the leading of God's Spirit. I mean... As a believer, and again, too, as an immature believer, or even a believer trying to get my way, I could say, the Spirit of God led me to do this. The Spirit of God led me to buy $100 worth of lottery tickets. The Spirit of God led me to buy this new Porsche. The Spirit of God, and again, to, and again too, if you have a Porsche or you like to buy lottery tickets, then you should repent. No. Um, but he was saying to me, the Spirit of the Lord is leading me to dance. And I thought about it for a second, and I, again, too, I know what he's gonna say. Well, David danced to I me. Mean, and I said, Well, here's the thing. You know, the Bible says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And we were grateful that he was coming to the Bible study. Again, too, when you're just getting started, just like we're, we're just grateful anybody that would come and, and be in fellowship with us and listen to me teach for however long I would go. But here's the thing, you know, he'd say, well, the Spirit of the Lord's leading me to dance at your Bible study. And I'd say, well, you know, if the Lord, I understand that dancing is a way of expressing worship to God, and and that's just not something we do. And I said, you know, I could even help you find another church where you can do that. And I didn't say that because it's trying to get rid of him. I just really wanted to help the guy. Okay, you know, maybe this isn't a fit for you spiritually in our Bible study. But this is what he said, how he responded to me. Well, the Spirit is leading me to dance at your Bible study. Again, I mean, how do you argue? The Spirit is telling me to do this. But then he says the thing that just crossed the line. He says, and if somebody were to try to stop me, they could get hurt. And those of you that know me and my wife, my wife leads worship. And I said to him, so you're saying to me that if Lynn's playing the guitar, leading worship, and you want to start dancing, and if she were to just simply say politely, Jeff, you know, I think that's a distraction for you to dance in our little Bible study. The attention is on you. Instead of the Lord, you might punch her. And he said, I don't know what would happen when the Spirit comes on me. And I said to him, that's not the Spirit of God. That's not the spirit of the Lord. And I said, you can't come to my Bible study anymore. Yeah, the Lord's Bible study. But I was young too. You can't come to the Bible study anymore. And the funny thing was, you know, and this is all taking place over the phone, I get off the phone and my wife, she begins to cry. And she says, we're trying to start a Bible study. You're kicking people out. And I said, well, I'm going to call up a friend of mine who's another pastor and see what he thinks or says. And even before I could finish it, he just said, Mike, kick him out. It's your responsibility as a shepherd to protect the sheep. If this guy is going to say the Spirit of the Lord led me to do this and then people could get hurt, I mean, that's not the Lord. I, okay, that's exactly what I was thinking, so thank you for the confirmation. And I told Lynn, and, and even then she just really struggled with the whole thing. And the funny thing that happened was the next day we'd come home from work And we have these huge oak trees at the time in front of the house we were renting. And they were covered in toilet paper. Now, I don't know it was this guy, but maybe the Spirit led him to throw toilet paper (laughs) all over the trees in front of our house. That's not what we're talking about. See, here's the thing. The Spirit of God will never lead you to do things that are contrary to God's Word. I mean, God's word, God has elevated his word even above his name, magnified as what the psalmist says. I mean, how do you guard against or how do you know whether or not the spirit is genuinely leading you or directing you or prompting you? Well, first of all, we have the safeguard of knowing what God's word says. And it's interesting to me how many times people will even say, Well, the Spirit's leading me to do this. Well, the Word of God says something contrary. So many times, uh, again, to the temptation that believers have to marry a non believer, to be in a relationship with a non believer, and just say, Well, the Lord's leading me to be in this relationship, and maybe they'll get saved. Listen, if you have to say, Maybe they'll get saved. You know, the scripture is very clear in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6, not to be unequally yoked, a believer with a non-believer. And again, too, there's a de-emphasis on the word of God in the churches today. And again, just these broad, sweeping principles like we should just love or grace. or, You know what? I, 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 I am so grateful for the grace of God and for the love of God. But it's only through the power of his word and knowing what his word commands us and the working of his spirit leading and directing us that again, too, that we're walking in obedience with him. That again, too, the the things of my flesh are being put to death and the things of God's spirit and God himself is being magnified. And, you know, one of the ways that I know that the spirit is leading me Many times, it's because it's the exact opposite of what I want to do. I don't want to do that. The Lord says, I want you to do this. This is what I'm leading you to do. A couple of examples. One of them is in the Old Testament. When Moses delivers, or the Lord uses Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. He leads them to the edge of the Red Sea, leads them there. The pillar of cloud, pillar of fires is leading the children of Israel. They're actually trapped because the sea is before them and two mountain ranges are on either side. And when Pharaoh hears about it, he's thinking, they're confused. They don't realize that they're enclosed there in that particular place. It's going to be, it's like going to you know, putting fish in a tin bucket and just fishing for fish that way, or putting chicken or ducks or whatever in your backyard and then just going out there and bang, bang, bang. And it's just like, it's going to be a, a turkey shoe. It's going to be easy. Pharaoh so, uh, assembles the army of Egypt to try to go after them. And again, too, you, you realize that the Lord led them. Well, He led them there so that He would be magnified. The seas parted, they cross over safely. And Pharaoh and his army die. For 40 years they are led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And there were times that God led them to bitter places like Mara, where there was no water. So that again too God could provide for them that water. There are times that the Lord leads us into many difficult things. But he's doing a refining work and he's mortifying the deeds of my flesh. He's putting the old man to death. And... It says there in verse 15, this is another reason why this passage, these two verses are important to me, because it says you haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Paul, writing to Timothy, says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I mean, the law and the flesh binds me. I am in bondage to serve it, and even then... I'm convicted by it, or I'm condemned by it, instead of having any life in it. And it says that we've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've been adopted. Now, I, 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 I wasn't adopted, so I don't understand it from that perspective. But my wife and I, we tried for seven years to have kids, children. And in the end, neither one of us is capable physically of having children. We found that out by going to the doctor. We found that out by, again, to trying to receive treatment. Again, again, t- any time my wife would go to a baby shower, anything like that, she would come home and she'd just be weeping. She'd say, oh, you know, I wish we could have children. And, and then I I would do what Elkanah did with Hannah, his wife. I'd say, am I not better to thee than ten sons? And that didn't bring her much comfort. (laughs) But here's the thing that happens, and some of you know Pastor Chick from Calvary St. Paul. He's a, a dear friend, close friend of mine. And I know maybe you're probably thinking, you're friends with him? Yes, I am. I love him. We love each other. We're in a bromance. But he calls me at the time, he's a youth pastor. At a Calvary Chapel, the Calvary Chapel we both came from in Oceanside, California. And he says, there's a girl that's pregnant in the youth group. And she wants to give her baby up for adoption. And I won't give you all the details and the great testimony of how God worked that out. But in the end, when our daughter was born, my wife is in the delivery room. And as the nurse is holding our newborn baby, and this was 25 years ago, you know, she goes to put our daughter Sarah into Robin, the birth mom's hands. And Robin says, Lynn is the mom. Put, let her hold her daughter first. And the thing that we then as parents, we understand what it is adoption, what it is to, to adopt from the parent's side. Because we treasure her as a daughter. And we realize the great gift that God has given us in her. And a lot of times people look at her and they see how beautiful she is or how gifted or talented she is. And I like to respond because sometimes they don't realize or know that our daughter was adopted. But I like to say, you know, they'll say, yeah, Sarah does such a great job this, or Sarah's so gifted in this. And I'll say, yeah, she is. She comes from a good gene pool, not ours And it's actually not even the gene pool that's important, but it's the working of God because we've been adopted into his family. She's like us. People look at her and they just like shake their head. You're just like your dad. You make the same crazy, lame, stale jokes that your dad does or all these different things. You know, when you've been adopted... You take on the personality of your father and of your adopted parents. But see, that's what God does for us. He sees us. He sees the need. And it's not like God couldn't produce children on his own. He created man and Eve. He formed Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth. He breathed the spirit of life into them. He could have just easily done that. Okay, you guys are corrupted. Now we're going to just we'll start with mankind 2.0. He doesn't do that. He wants to redeem fallen man. And it's done by the Spirit of God coming in. And it's done then by God saying, okay, I'm going to take your old sin nature and adopt you into my family. And as a result, as the children of God, as that that day that I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I understood that because now all of a sudden, even though I was a young man, 21 at the time, it's just like now I'm crying out to God as my father because I sense the new life that has been birthed in me through what the Spirit has done and because of the forgiveness of sins of Jesus. And we've received that spirit of adoption, and we cry out, Abba, Father. And it says, and again, too, the emphasis on the Spirit. It says in verse 16 that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. Verse 18, I'll read in the Old King James because I love to say this, for I reckon, I reckon. I I picture a guy sitting on a porch in a little small town in Texas, Dust Bowl, Texas or something, and you're driving up. and and Can you tell me which way to the gas station? Well, I reckon I could. I mean, I love that Old King James. But here's the thing, that word reckon is an accounting term. And if you've ever been to another land, Dwight's in Israel right now, and they still do this in Israel. You're buying something, whether it may be, you know, spices or seeds or grain or whatever. A lot of the market, you know, places, these little shopkeepers, they will weigh things by putting things on a balance or a scale. They'll put a kilo on one side and then, you know, whatever it is you're wanting to buy on the other side, and then when it's balanced out, you know you've got the amount that you want to buy. And that word reckon is an accounting term. And he says, I reckon or I account that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. See, he talks about the spirit bearing witness with our spirit, and that's one of the ways that you know that you're in the family of God, that you've been adopted into the family of God, because it's that internal work of God's spirit, but also, too, it is that work of our own spirit bearing witness that, yes, God is there and he's doing that work. And we become a member then, we've been adopted in as sons and daughters and heirs, the family of God, along with Jesus Christ. And the thing that you think, even as I look at that, Paul introduces something that again, too, maybe at times we think, well, I'm a child of God now. My sins have been forgiven I'm going to live this easy life in this world because I I belong to God. And it's really the opposite because this life is temporary and because the work that God is wanting to do in our lives is eternal. And as a result, you'll find that many times as a Christian, you will suffer because of who you are in Christ because people see that change. And again, they're convicted by it. I know before I got saved, I felt so uncomfortable around this guy who was a Christian because, again, I knew that it was real. I knew that it was sincere. I knew that he read God's word. And even the things that he would share, just like, I knew I didn't have an answer for that. I didn't know what the Bible said. And I, I don't even want to deal with it. I, I Again, too, your, your flesh is fighting against the spirit. But I know that when I accepted Christ, then I came into the family. And Jesus talks about the road or the the gate that leads to eternal life. And he says that it's straight or that it's narrow. And he says only few enter in at that gate. But he says the, the road that leads to destruction is broad. And everybody's on that road. It's not a lot of people that are saved. It's a few people that are saved. Read in the book of Revelation where it talks about the seven churches. You know, the the church that, again, too, you could look at are the two churches would be the church at Sardis, which is few in number because it's been persecuted and the Lord commends them for their faithfulness, but also to the church of Philadelphia. And it doesn't say, the Church of Philadelphia, they've got power, they've got strength, they're out there changing the world, they open doors and they close the doors they want. And God says the opposite, you know what, you're few, and you have little strength. You can't even open doors for yourself, but God says, I'm the one that opens doors, and the doors that I open, I want you to go through, and the doors that I shut, I don't want you to go through. They are trusting and relying upon God. And part of being a Christian is part of suffering in this world. And God does two works through it. Sometimes that suffering comes because people persecute you. And again, too, the persecution that we receive here in the United States is nothing compared to the persecution that believers suffer in other parts of the world because of their love for Jesus Christ. What's the worst that can happen? We lose our job or we don't get that promotion or people say bad things about me. Oh, too bad. I mean, really, I mean, think about it. Sometimes we need to have our perspective adjusted. I mean, you know, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mean, again, to understand in other parts of the world, there are people that are being beheaded for identifying themselves as believers of Jesus Christ. And we're bummed out because they say mean things about me at work. We shouldn't be. But the other thing that Paul is saying there in verse 17 is, is that if we suffer with him, we're also going to be glorified together. And he says that I reckon the sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. You put the two on a scale. Anything that you might suffer as a Christian and the glory that God is working and that we will enjoy in eternity And again, too, it's like when you were a kid and you got on one of those teeter-totters or those seesaw and then somebody playing a joke gets off and the one side drops and the other side goes up in the air. It's just like that, except for the glory is on that side that drops like a lead weight. And anything that we might suffer is nothing in comparison, like a a teeter-totter that has nothing on that side. And in verse 19, he says that the earnest expectation of old King James says the creature, it's referring to creation. Because when man fell, when man listened to what, what the serpent said, Adam and Eve, not only was he affected, but all of creation was affected in the fall. It was corrupted as well, and you can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. But he says that the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature, or the creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails together in pain until now. I mention Genesis chapter 3 and the effect of man, Adam and Eve's sin in, in the garden. Not only did it Produced separation. But it affected the creation. And God says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. As he is pronouncing the judgment. And also to his judgment upon the serpent. Upon Satan. He says in verse 15. That I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. And it will bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. It's the promise that a Messiah would come someday. And restore things. And God does that. To give man hope. But the other thing that we know is that because creation was corrupted because of man's sin, we also know that creation is going to be restored. But there are birth pangs that are taking place as a result. And we see evidence of that in the world that we're living in. I mean we like to think that we're responsible. Mankind's responsible. We just need to cut down on our carbon emissions. We need to recycle. We need to do all these things and and the weather will get better or the tides will change or there'll be less earthquakes and they attribute all these things to again to mankind. But the Bible attributes these things to the birth pangs and the groaning that the world is going through because it wants to be redeemed just as much as the child of God does. Second Peter in his epistle, and again, I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but because of time. But he 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 points out in verse nine, because we live in a day where sometimes people think, well, you know, Christians have been saying the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back. And he addresses that. Peter says that in the last days that they're going to be scoffers. And in verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat and the earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? See, you know, Peter's actually saying there is going to be global warming, it's just not going to happen over a long period of time. God's going to cook it all. There is global warming, but again, too, the birth pangs, these things, the groaning. And it got me thinking about groaning. I mean, he says that all of creation is gro- groaning so that they want to see, you know, the creation wants to see God's son's The sons and daughters of God revealed or manifest. And there are some that have taken this particular expression, little King James, and made some weird thoughts that somehow mankind is going to usher in the return of Jesus Christ. And it's contrary to everything else that the Bible says. And they'll say, we're the manifest sons of God. That's not what it's talking about. And again, too, you'll see in the next few verses that it gives context in verse 23 of what that manifestation but it got me to thinking about groaning and it talks about creation groaning or these birth pangs but it also is going to talk about us as believers groaning as well and it says in verse 23 not only they but we ourselves also which have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body that's the manifestation of the sons of God when, the God, when God completes the work through either the resurrection or through the rapture, completes that work of this corruptible putting on incorruption. And the Lord establishes his kingdom here on earth. And the Bible goes on to talk about then, again, too, back in Second Peter, talks about... Um, that in verse 12, that we should look and hasten unto the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire and shall be dissolved in the elements with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And verse 23 says, we groan for the same thing. For we're saved by hope. But hope that that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not... Then do we, with patience, wait for it? This is we groan, and it got me thinking. The three reasons why, and again, too, maybe you can come up with more, but the three basic reasons why we groan is, and I'm doing this more and more, is with age. I'm fifty-six. I have back problems, weight problems. It's not my fault. Food tastes so good. But sometimes getting up out of a chair or rolling out of bed those first 20 minutes is like, we groan. We groan with age, we groan with pain. You hurt yourself. And again, too, because of that injury, you have pain and we groan. But there are times, too, that we groan because we're grieved or because we're sorrowing. I mentioned, I, mentioned well, I don't know if I mentioned this, I know I mentioned the uh, guys back there, but you know, my, they asked, you know, did Lynn come with you? I said, no, you know, her uncle passed away just a couple of days ago. And because of that, we have to go to California to do, I'm doing the funeral service for it, for him. And, and uh, but again, too, just even when we got the news, I just felt grieved and just kind of groaned as a result of that. And here's the thing, not only does creation groan, but we ourselves are groaning as well. Because again, we want to see, we look at this world and say, okay, it's been long enough, Lord, please come back. We groan for your return. Or again, too, with pain. You know, we're pained by the things that we see going on in this world, or we're pained by, again, too, the hardness of men's heart, or we're pained by certain things. And again, to grief or sorrow I mean you I think about what Abraham says when Pharaoh asks him, "How old are you?" And when he tells him how old he is, he, he says, "You know uh, few and I think he says uses the word troubling or, or heavy or, or i, I didn 't mark it down in my notes, but he you know he basically is, is saying i 've lived a hard life it's it's, it's, it's a sad life, and yet you think, wow, Abraham, you lived a sad life. Yeah, compared to the things that God is going to do in me. And we groan for the same things, and we hope for the same things. Verse 26, and I'll close with these couple of verses, he says, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good, that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. See, the spirit of God is actually working in our hearts. And we groan grown as well. But there is relief because in verse 26 it says, the Spirit helps our infirmities. He's not talking about just physical infirmities. I mean, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and helps us through every situation. The other thing is in verse 28, where he says, All things work together for good. Even as I think about the election, and I'm not going <laughs> to, there are people in our fellowship, they're just like, they're all worried about what's going to happen and, and if so-and-so gets elected and if so-and-so gets elected. And, and I, I just, you know, again, to just grieved by the whole thing. and This is what we got. This is the best that our country can, can put out as two candidates. Last spring I was in Israel on a missions trip. or It was during the summer months now that I think about it. And as I was talking to a shopkeeper, he says, if you were to put Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump on a deserted island who would win? And I'm thinking, who would win? And then before I could come up with an answer, he says, the American people. (laughs) It doesn't matter to me who wins. I mean, I I know we as Christians should care about the political process, we should vote, and I do. And when people have asked me, I've said, okay, well, I, I'm, I, I have to do, I have to break down and do something that I've never done in my life. I have to vote for a woman. I'm writing in my wife's name for president. She already tells me what to do. She might as well tell everybody else what to do, right? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, don't be offended by that. Those of you that know me love my wife. I love my wife. And actually, I like that she, never mind. It's not, not all that important. But it's going to work together for good. God is still in control. He's on the throne and prayer changes things, as Jay Vernon McGee used to say. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. And Lord, I pray that we would be doers of your word, not hearers only. And I ask your blessing upon your people. And Lord, I pray for the direction of our nation. And the only hope is you, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we would share you with as many people as we can. We ask you these things in your mighty name. Amen.